Welcome. Welcome. Friends, we, we are about to tread in some dangerous waters. Fellas, I'm going to need your prayers, right? I'm a man, and what I mean by that is I'm a biological male, which means there are certain things that I cannot do, one of which is give birth to children, right? I've witnessed it. I've been in the room kind of just watching helplessly a cheerleader like, babe, you got this, right? When she's glaring like, how many times are you going to say push, you know? Right? I've witnessed it. I've been there. And this is why it's about to get dangerous. We are going to spend the next 30 minutes comparing our lives to child labor. And as, as men, that is a dangerous thing to do, right? All the ladies want to know who's saying that's exhausting on the screen, right? Who's saying that? Is that the guy? Is that the girl? That better not be the guy, right? I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. So, fellas, I want you to pray for me because this is a dangerous metaphor to make. I understand that. I want to be sensitive to that. But here's the deal. Romans 8, verses 18 through 30, it explains for us that man, woman, child, all of creation has been subjected to what Paul calls childbirth or child labor, labor pains. We're, gonna about, we're about to gonna read it together here, but before we do, I'm going to kind of set up the text so you know, I want you to be able to see what the Apostle Paul is talking about. In verses 18 of Romans 8, verses 18 through 21, we discover why. Why is it that this world, that you and I have been subjected to what he calls labor pains? Why have we been subjected to suffer? Now, the reality that we suffer will not come as a surprise to anyone, right? The world is full of suffering. Nature has been fractured. The heart of humanity has been fractured. We are a mess. We are not good people at our core. Even the best people out there, our motivations were broken, were sinful. And because nature and men are fallen, there is so much suffering in this world, So much suffering in this world. Honestly, with the 24-hour news cycle, with the reality of the internet, it's amazing that we're not all just on a weeping puddle on the floor every day. Am I right? Like, I just heard a story this last week that breaks my heart in so many different ways. A first grader shot his teacher in one of the Carolinas or West Virginia. A first grader. Like, how are we not just a weeping puddle on the floor every single day? There are horrors and crazy amounts of suffering in our world that it's insane. It's insane. It is heart-wrenching and heart-breaking. And in verse 18, Paul acknowledges this suffering. He does not expect us, God does not expect us to pretend like this world is all honky-dory. No, he acknowledges it. And then he tells us why it exists in the first place. Romans 8, verses 18 through 21. Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration. It was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope in hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. So verses 18 through 21, it clues us in to why we suffer the current state of things that we suffer. We're told that our world has been subjected to it. We're told that that we were subjected to suffer by the will of God 
in response to sin. Now I realize on face value, that is a very, very tough pill to swallow. How could a loving God subject his creation, his people, his world? How could a loving God subject his creation to endure such a thing? I've given this illustration before, so if you've heard it, you're going to hear it again. What would you and I say about a judge who looked at a convicted murderer or rapist? The jury has convicted. The evidence is in. This person is guilty. What would we say in our heart to a judge that looked at that convicted murderer, rapist, serial killer, whatever, and refused to subject that individual to the suffering of incarceration? That would be neither loving nor just, would it? And I realize that the disobedience of Adam and Eve, right, eating the fruit they weren't supposed to eat, I realize that 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 first sin, it doesn't feel like it's on the same level as serial murder or rape, but that's just because we don't understand sin and the affront that it is to a perfect and holy God. All sin is grotesque. It's a grotesque offense against our God who is both loving and just. And so he could not do nothing. He had to do something. There was a price that needed to be paid, a penalty that needed to be doled out, an incarceration of sorts. But friends, not one without hope. You see, God's heart was never to incarcerate humanity without parole. He was ne- his heart was never to place us on death row without hope of ever getting off of death row. The heart of God has always been to bring us back into his freedom. It was to restore what was always supposed to be. His desire has always been rehabilitation, not death row. And even as he subjected this world to suffer, he promised that this suffering, this frustration that you and I endure in life, that it would not go on forever. He promised that one day creation and all the children of God would be liberated from the decay, as the text says, from this decay of the world, that we would be freed to experience a peculiar weight of glory because of the suffering because of the struggle that we were subjected to, that we were forced to endure. Sin is the reason why humanity and creation suffer. It was never God's heart, it was never his desire, but it happened, and because it happened, sin is the cause and the reason you and I have been subjected to a life of suffering and frustration. But in God's goodness, this state of things was not forced upon us without a promise or without hope. Verse 18 gives us a glimpse into this hope. Paul says that our present sufferings are what? Are not worth comparing with the glory that will one day be revealed. See, friends, there is hope. There's always hope for the Christian. Things will not always be this way. They won't always be this way. And it is because of this hope This longing for redemption, for restoration. It's because of this hope that we have. Paul says, because of this hope, suffering for us, for creation, is like childbirth. It's like childbirth. Verses 23 through 25 explain what suffering is like for a creation that knows what's coming. They know what's coming eventually. All the animals, all the creation, it knows. Believers, we know what God has promised, what Christ is going to eventually bring more fully. And that's why the suffering we experience is like that of childbirth. Paul calls it labor pains because we know the glory that's coming. Read it with me, verses 22 through 25. 
We know what we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is not hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not have, do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. This section of Scripture explains what suffering is like for those who hope in what God has promised. Paul says it's like pregnancy. It's like labor. Again, I'm not a woman. Might be a news flash to some of you. I'm not a woman, right? And let me just say to all the women in here who have, have mothered children, bless you. Bless you. If men had to go through pregnancy, our population would be far smaller. <laughs> Amen, right? It's true, right? Bless you. Bless you. I've seen this process. I've not had to endure it, but I've seen what happens. I've seen an alien entity take up residence inside your body, right? I've seen this, this organism treat your body like a Tybo class, right? And use your bunch, your, your, I felt the, the baby. It feels like it's in a, a, a kickboxing class, just going to town on your organs. I've seen it make you crave things that should never be enjoyed in the same meal, right? Pickles and ice cream, that should never be a thing. But it is sometimes. I've seen what it's like. I haven't been a part of it, but bless the ladies in here. It's a suffering pregnancy. It's hard. You can't sleep. You can't get comfortable. You've got to go to the bathroom all the time. Right? It's, it's horrible. It's horrible. And yet, and yet, you, many of you, do it more than one time. You do it more than once, willingly. And I'm sure sometimes you question, like, why, why did I do this, right? But you do. You do. I realize I've never felt this, nor will I ever feel this. But all of the suffering that the women experience in this room, bringing the blessing of a child home and into this world, I have to believe that because so many of you are willing to do it more than once, that the glory of that child makes all the sufferings of pregnancy and labor worth it. That has to be true, or we wouldn't do it as many times as we do. Paul says the reality of childbirth is a very good metaphor for what the Christian and what creation experiences as we struggle in hope for the glory that God will one day reveal. The pain is real. The Bible does not ask us to pretend like everything is rainbows and unicorns. It doesn't. That is not the picture that we are given to the world. The pain is real. The suffering is real. And sometimes we groan. We groan outwardly. We groan inwardly as we wait and we endure the pain and the tension that we feel as we look forward to our hope. You see, as believers, we know how things should be. We know that things are not as they should be. And that creates a tension. Suffering exists because we know in our beings, in the center of our beings, that there is a right and there is a wrong. And we experience wrong a lot. We know in, our, in the core of our being that this world is broken. We have a sense of what it ought to be. There is an ought in our heart. We know things are not as they ought to be, and that creates a, suf a suffering and a tension. We sense that the things are not as they ought to be. 
creation and the Christian know why. And we know that it won't always be this way. We know that the Lord is going to heal our world, but we are forced to wait and hope. And that, friends, creates a tremendous frustration and tension in our hearts at times. How long, Lord, is the cry of so many scriptures. How long? How long must we suffer? How long must we wait until, Lord, you will make good on your promises? This hope creates a tension. Creates a tension, but it also creates a staying power in our hearts, doesn't it? As we fix our hope on what God has promised, that hope gives us the ability to persevere, knowing that one day it won't always be so. One day God will make good on his promises. That gives us the power, the ability to endure, to stand up, to fight, to struggle. Our hope helps us persevere, and our hope gives us patience. It helps us wait. But the scriptures, this scripture in particular, it is not naive. There are days where our hope wanes. There are days where we feel less than victorious, defeated even, where we struggle in life, where life feels so overwhelming that we feel as though it's going to consume us. There will be days where our hope wanes and in our weakest moments we will lose sight of the hope that God has given to us and we will question in the core of our being, where is he? Is he even real? Can I believe anything that he said? There will be days where even the truths and promises of God will ring hollow hollow in our hearts, where we struggle to believe and we question whether or not we even want to continue with life. There will be days like Job, where we question why God would have ever even allowed us to be born in the first place. What then? What then when we're weak, when our hope wanes, when the fight within us falters? Romans 8, 26 through 27. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for. You ever been there? We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And He who searches our hearts, He knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Friends, when our hope fails, God promises help. He promises help. The Spirit also known as the Comforter, the Advocate, the Counselor. He promises to meet us in our darkness, to meet us in our despair and in our weakness. When words fail, he says, I will find them for you. I'll find them for you. When our tears are exhausted, they are poured out and all that's left are whimpers. The Spirit comes and says, I will weep. I will whimper with you. I will groan with you and I will interpret those groans for you before the Father. I will search your heart. I will decipher your emotions and I will take them into the throne room of heaven and I will intercede on your behalf in accordance with the will of God. Church, I hope you can see the love of your Father in these verses. Wes said we're going to talk about suffering today, and I cannot answer all of the questions about it, but I I want you to see what I pray that you see is the pursuit of your Father in the midst of our suffering. He is there, church. 
when your hope wanes. And believe me, I've been there. Some of you all know my story. My dad passed away when I was eight. I haven't had a rosy life always. There have been struggles. Paul knows what it's like to suffer. Go read Acts. When he's been called, the Lord Jesus spoke to him. Let me tell you, Paul, what you will suffer for my name's sake. Read the history. He was beaten multiple times, imprisoned, never for theft or something that you should be imprisoned for, but for preaching the gospel. Some people think that his wife left him because of the call God put on his life. He was headed on the fast track, Ivy League, Lori, or Ivy, Ivy League lawyer, going to be a high-rolling, rich, you know, religious leader. And then he did what we all know him to do, and his wife maybe left him. The guy suffered immensely. He suffered with a thorn, church. We're not told what that thorn is. Some people think it's demonic in nature. Some people think it's physical, like epilepsy. Others think it was a mental thing, bouts of depression. We don't know. I love how vague the scriptures were in that point. It opens us up to, to relate to Paul. There's a thorn, and he struggled with it, and he prayed against it and asked God to deliver him from it time and time and time again. He struggled with a thorn, just like some of you. Just like some of you struggle with an illness, with mental inabilities, with anxiety, with, with all kinds. We struggle. So did Paul. So did Paul. He gets it. He, he struggled with a thorn just like some of you. You too have struggled. You struggled for too long. You feel as though you've done your part. You've done everything you know to do according to the scriptures. And yet here you are, the thorn still persists. Here you are, still frustrated, still struggling. You feel weak. You feel wrung out with the suffering you've been subjected to. I know. So does Paul. More importantly, so does your Father in heaven. And please hear this in your heart. Hear this. Hear this from your Father. The Lord God has not abandoned you. He's not abandoned you, friend. You have not been cast off. God has sent you his spirit. He has sent you his counselor. He has sent you an advocate. He himself has come and he is with you. He has your back. He will fight for you when all of the fight has gone out of you. If you will but come to an end of yourself and surrender. If you will but come and with but a word, ask him for help. Help. The Spirit will intercede on your behalf and he will remind you that nothing you're going through is meaningless. It's not. It's not meaningless. It is doing something for your good and you will receive a, pe a peculiar weight of glory because of it. Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know, and we know, that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God he foreknew, he also predestined to conform to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among brothers and sisters, and those he predestined he also called. Those he called he also justified, and those he justified he also glorified. Yes, church, we suffer. 
We do. So did the Son of God. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. Yes, we suffer. But creation knows it's not meaningless. And we know, because of the gospel of Jesus, it will not endure forever. We have hope. And because of that hope, although we groan inwardly, as with the pains of childbirth, we know that one day it will all be worth it. Church, I can't read a text like this and not go back to a sermon that I heard 10 years ago from a guy by the name of John Piper. If I could listen to one sermon for the rest of my life and only one sermon, it would be the one that I'm going to share with you in just a small portion. I don't have time to give it all to you. I'm going to link to it on our website, and I would encourage you at some point, file this in your podcast queue and dial it up and listen to it. It's an hour. If there was only one sermon I could ever listen to, this would, this would be it. The word Piper speaks on comes to us from Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 and 18. The passage states, Therefore, therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For the light and momentary troubles, they're achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And so, because of that, in that promise, so... We fix our eyes not on what we see, not on what we feel, but on what is unseen, on the promises of God, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Here's what Mr. Piper shares. He says, in light of these verses, not only is all of your affliction momentary, not only is all your affliction light in comparison to eternity and the glory there, but all of it is totally meaningful. And that's a very controversial statement, he says, because I know how much insane suffering is in this world, right? Every time something happens, every time something horrific happens, an interviewer will say, it's meaningless. A first grader shoots his teacher. It's meaningless. The suffering, it's meaningless. And it is, at least from our perspective. They will look at it and they will say, this is meaningless. Suffering is everywhere. Again, with the inter internet, it's no wonder we're not all in a heap on the floor always. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, Our light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. And it doesn't say that the, the suffering we experience, that it will be followed by an eternal weight of glory. That might be good enough. That's not what it says. It says, the word there, it means produce, to prepare, to cause, to bring about. It's not denying our labor pains. It's not denying that there is suffering, but it's cluing us into the reality that because there is a sovereign God over all of everything, controlling everything, that no suffering in his goodwill is ever without hope or purpose. And what Paul affirms here in 2 Corinthians 4 and Romans 8 is that every millisecond of your pain whether that be because of the fallen nature or the fallen man, right? Fallen nature. Fallen nature. Because nature is fallen, our bones rot. Our vision fades. My dad used to make fun of people having to have bifocals until he hit 40, and now he's got to have them, right? 
We get old. Our vision fades. Our hair falls out. Cancer develops in our bodies. We will all waste away and we will die. And if it's not through the decaying of our bodies, we will get struck by lightning. We will get swept away in a flood. And if fallen nature doesn't kill you, then fallen man will. If nature doesn't cripple you, human carelessness in a car will rip your legs off. Or human hostility with a bomb will blow your eyes out. What Paul is saying here is that all of this pain, all of this suffering that we experience from fallen nature and fallen man, every millisecond of your misery in the path of obedience is producing a peculiar glory you will get because of that suffering. Church, that is a very controversial statement, but I believe it. So if anybody ever comes to me, if a believer comes to me that's suffering and says, this is meaningless, I will listen. I will probably be quiet because the hurting that they're experiencing right now is really bad. So I'm going to wait and I'm going to pray and I'm going to wait until the time is right. But I'm going to eventually come back and say, it wasn't meaningless. I don't care if it was cancer or criticism. I don't care if it was slander or sickness. It wasn't meaningless. Because 2 Corinthians 4.17 says that my light, momentary, lifelong, total affliction, it is doing something. It's doing something. It's never meaningless. Of course you can't see what it's doing. That's the main unseen thing that 2 Corinthians 4.18 is talking about. What's the unseen you're supposed to look at? You're supposed to look at the promise of God in verse 17 that says your pain is doing something for you. You can't see it. You can't feel it. Either you see it with the eyes of faith and believe it because God said it, or you lose heart. Either you trust Romans 8.28 that God can and does always work all things to the get together for the good of those who have been called to the according of his purposes, or you don't. It doesn't necessarily mean God causes all of it. What I believe it means is that God always says, I can work with that. I can work with that. Joseph's brother sell him into slavery. He suffers for decades in jail, famished, falsely imprisoned, And eventually, the brothers come and they say, what we did was evil. And Joseph says, my God said I could work with that. What you intended for evil, my God can work for my good. It's not meaningless, church. It's never meaningless. Now, I could tell you the story about my dad dying and all of the tremendous good that he's brought about it, but I don't think I could get with it without blubbering. So, what I'm going to do is share an illustration that John Piper shares in this message to illustrate. He tells us of John the Baptist. John the Baptist's birth was miraculous, his ministry was powerful, and his death was tragic. Some might even say meaningless. You can read about it in Mark 6. In there, Mark tells us. Mark tells us the story. Jesus has told us that There is no person, no man born of woman that is greater than John the Baptist. Here's what that means. John the Baptist was the greatest human being to ever live. Greatest. When we discover 
his situation in Mark, we find the greatest man on earth. According to Jesus, the greatest man to ever presence the earth, he's in prison. Do you know why he's in prison? He's in prison because he looked at the king. He looked at the king and he said, you can't have her. That's Philip's wife. You stole her. You are an adulterer before God. You can't have her. That's a very dangerous thing to tell to a king. One who has absolute authority over everyone and can do whatever he wants. And so Herod puts John in jail because he's scared of him. John has authority with the people. So he puts him in jail. He hasn't killed him. And there he sits. And now it's Herod's birthday. Herod is a narcissist. He throws a party for himself. Invites all the powerful people. And at this party, he includes a little bonus. A little sexual bonus. He has his daughter, his stepdaughter, come out and put on a sexy dance. Turns everybody on. Everybody in the room. She does great, man. Everybody's turned on. Herod recognizes that she's done well. So he turns to her and he says, listen, you can have anything you want up to half my kingdom. Her daughter goes to Herod's adulterous wife, Herodias. Says, what should I ask for? Herodias hates John the Baptist. You can understand why. She says, ask for John the Baptist's head on a platter. She goes back into the room All the guests get quiet. What's she going to ask for? She says, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Herod can't unsay what he said. Whispers to the attendant, go get her. Go get it. Two men walk into his jail cell. One, One brought a sword. There's a moment of silence. John doesn't know what's going on. The one with the sword says, hey, come over here and kneel down. If you move, we will bind you. And John says, wait, what, what happened? What's going on? The executioner says, the king's daughter danced at a party. She asked for your head. We've come to get it. We're going to take your head. That is the last thing that the greatest man on earth has to think about in the last 20 seconds of his life. Friends, what would you think in that moment? Everything in me says, God, what could be more meaningless than a party where a girl dances and asks for a head of the greatest man on the planet and within two verses, he's dead. Meaningless. Absolutely meaningless way to die. There is nothing glorious in that. It stinks, as Piper says, to high heaven. I'll tell you, I hope that God in his mercy through the groans of the Holy Spirit searched John's heart and put into John's head in those last 20 seconds this light momentary affliction is working for you John an eternal weight of glory John I will work all things together for your good I can work with this I can work with this loved ones I know you suffer God knows you suffer. But as with creation, we do not suffer. We do not labor in vain. None of it is meaningless. It will feel meaningless at times. That's why verse 18 says, don't look at what is seen. Imagine you're just standing there watching. 
watching what's about to happen to John the Baptist. They're going to kill him. He didn't do anything wrong. She just danced. It's meaningless. It's crazy. It's an absurd novel, right? This is Shakespearean. It's crazy. What your eyes are telling you, this is stupid. This is meaningless. God, where are you? What you're feeling, it's too much, we think. In our weakness, our words fail. Words fail. Paul says, do not look to what is seen. When your mom dies, when your dad dies, when you're an eight-year-old kid in a construction accident, when your kid dies, when you got cancer at 40, when a car careens off the sidewalk and takes her out, do not say it's meaningless. It's not. It's working for you an eternal weight of glory. God is working together all things for your good. He can work with that. Therefore, therefore, Christian, do not lose heart. Take these truths, all the ones you've heard in every message you've ever heard and read from the scripture, take these truths and day by day, Focus on them. Preach them to yourself every morning. Get alone with God and preach His Word into your mind until your heart sings with confidence that you are new and that you are cared for. Your suffering is never meaningless, church. It is doing something. It is producing an eternal weight of glory. There is nothing that you are currently enduring in this life that God says, I can't work with that. No. He says, listen, I can work all things. I can work through all things for your good. It might not feel good. You may not be able to understand it. Don't look to what is seen. Don't focus on your feelings. Look to what is unseen. Let's pray. Lord God, I hate this word, and I also love it. There is a reason why I return to the message from John Piper, Lord. It speaks to my heart. When I suffer, when I am forced to endure frustration, and I, I, I want to argue with you about it, You remind me that you will never say to anything that I endure, I can't work with that. Because you are God and you you see all the variables. You see everything. You exist without time. You see my time frame, past, present, and future as one, one moment all together. Because of that, Lord, you can look into every situation and you can say, I can work with that, Levi. I can work with that pain, with that heartache, with that thorn, with that struggle, with that injustice. I can work with that evil for your good. Trust me. Trust me. I love you. I will not abandon you. I have given my spirit who indwells you. He lives inside of you. And when words fail you, when your fight leaves you, when you feel weak, come to my spirit. Acknowledge his presence. Allow him to interpret your groans, 
your confusion, your emotions. Bring them to me. Intercede on your behalf. And watch me go to work. For your good. And for my glory.